Well, good morning, City Light. It is so good to see you. Uh, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't already done so, open or activate your Bible to John 18. We'll be in verses 1 through 14. And I'll warn you on the front end, I just got back from a hunting trip in Kentucky with my grandpa. So what tends to happen is my accent recalibrates when I go to the South. So I pray you can hear what I'm saying today. And so my message is called Control Freaks. Control Freaks from John 18, 1 through 14. Before we get into the text, I need to begin by confessing something this morning. I've been in denial for a long time, but it's finally time to come clean. As a 34-year-old man, I am terrified of flying. It didn't always used to be the case, but I've suddenly developed this just over the past couple of years. Now, I am a Jesus follower, and I trust that my eternal destiny is secure, but I'm concerned about how I'm going to get there. Uh, I'm, I've just become grossly fixated on the fact that, that plummeting 60,000 feet and striking the earth and going up in flames is not the ideal way to go out. Now, if you are a frequent traveler, you know you can pick out the petrified people on the plane. You know how you can tell the difference? Well, just watch people during takeoff or during turbulence. There'll be some people relaxed, uh, headphones on, casual conversation, some people sleeping. And then there's people like me, head pressed back hard against the seat rest, uh, up tight, death grip on the armrest, eyes closed, and mumbling a mixture of prayers and sometimes cuss words. I'm that guy (laughs) on the airplane. And I have learned, unfortunately, that airplane anxiety does cause some awkwardness at times. You know, the last time I flew, I befriended a man from Ohio, and I just confessed to him, like, dude, I've got some problems here, so overlook it when it comes. And so he distracted me by talking about football for two hours. But then suddenly we hit a bad patch of turbulence, and I have to say, I accidentally made an Abrahamic oath with this man. And what I mean is that I'm used to Brittany sitting beside me on the plane, and we hit that patch, and my reflexes kicked in, and I grabbed his leg. But... Thankfully, he was cool with it. I warned him up front. And so, fed up with my fear, I decided to do everything in my power to fight it, to not let it conquer me on my return home. And so my prayers were, my weapons were prayer, Philippians 4, and logic. And so during takeoff, I exhorted myself out loud and prayed, be anxious for nothing, Cameron. Jesus, help me. And the woman beside me was freaking out just a little bit. She wondered if I knew something she didn't know in that moment. And and during turbulence, I would grip and pray, God, give me your peace that surpasses all understanding. Please guard my anxious heart. And then I employed some logic. And this is just a peek into the the world of an OCD man. Um, I knew that flying was safer than driving, but I looked it up. And so I was comforted by the fact that While driving, you have a 1 in 5,000 chance of dying in your automobile. But the chance of dying in a plane crash is more like 1 in 11 million. So that made me feel better. If that helps you, receive that from the Lord this morning. (laughs) And my strategy worked. So I I knew that it was going to be a rocky flight in. The pilot announced that there were 30-mile-per-hour winds blowing around the Omaha airport. Yet, remarkably, I remained calm throughout. So when it got bumpy, I kept praying and employing logic. And one thought that was on my mind was like, Cameron, this is just like four-wheeling in the mountains of Tennessee. And you don't freak out when you're there. Don't freak out now. It's much safer now. So I'm talking to myself. And then 
I even started laughing at one point because I was cool. I kept my composure and didn't get a cold sweat. And by this point, that lady surely thought I was a charismatic. And then after I landed, I did some honest soul searching. And I've been confessing this to Brittany, asking that she would help me with this. And I, and I asked, why is it that I feel much safer driving than flying, though it's much less safe to drive? Where does this anxiety come from? Well, the reality is I'm a control freak. I've got some major control issues, and I'm being dead serious right now. Anxiety haunts me, and it seems like the older I get, the worse it is at times. And so the reality is, is that I trust myself when I travel more than I trust a trained pilot. So think about how faulty that logic is. I mean, in Tennessee, literally, my driving test, I drove around a block, didn't even navigate a red light, and they handed me my license. And, 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 the, and the pilot, he's been trained for years to fly. And Brittany and I, we still get lost using Siri to navigate Omaha. We don't know our way around yet, but he's using the latest in aviation technology. So I'm actually much better off when I trust my life to him. Well, church, in today's text, we discover other individuals that are freaking out just a little bit because their circumstances are threatened and, and they're fearful about losing control. That They should have trusted the control of Jesus, but they're fearful about losing control. And so where we're at in John is the ministry of the upper room is over. Christ's intercessory prayers have concluded and the events of the cross are set in motion. And so in John 18, we'll see that Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. He'll be protected by Peter. And then he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So before us is an assortment of, of men, of individuals who are trying to assert their control over Jesus for selfish purposes. But here's the great truth from today's text, the big takeaway Though human beings routinely think that we're in control, Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and he's actually the one who is in all control. And we'll see laid out before us that actually nobody takes away his life. Rather, Jesus willingly lays down his life for the sake of sinners like us. So the creator and the controller of the universe will go on to be crucified so that control freaks like us can be freed from the need to control everything. And so, City Light, I say to you that this is such a crucial word. Just go ahead and confess it to your neighbor. We all struggle with control. I mean, some of you, in this very moment, you're stressed to the max because you're exerting every ounce of physical and emotional energy you have trying to dictate all the details of your life. If that's you, I'm praying that, that the Lord would bring a spirit of conviction, that he would cause us to cast our cares on the Lord as opposed to trying to just care for ourselves. Or maybe you're here today and you're terribly discouraged. The light in your eyes has been dimmed through seeing pain or experiencing suffering. You know, maybe the church shooting down in Sutherland, Texas has caused you to ask, well, is God really in control in this existence? Or maybe you're devastated as you deal with a family tragedy. Well, if that's you, then my prayer is that the Lord would use this word to bring some needed comfort to your life. May the Holy Spirit give you eyes to see that, that God is still seated firmly on his throne. And maybe, may he help you to understand that, that though your pain 
might seem senseless at the moment, but they're actually divine purposes for the ways that you're suffering. And so as we take a closer look at John 18, 1 through 14, here's the primary proposition that emerges from this passage. So if you're taking notes, number one, Jesus is in complete control. It might not seem like it, but we see evidence that Christ is in control. And so after he has the Passover meal with the disciples, and after he prays, he and the disciples cross the Kidron Valley, and then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is kind of their park, their hangout spot. They spent time there while visiting Jerusalem. And then we get the first clue that though Christ is about to be arrested, he's in control of the situation. Uh, Notice again verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, here's the key phrase, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So get this. Jesus intentionally goes and leads his band of merry men to a place where Judas can easily find them. Now, it's not that the Lord is really bad at hide-and-go-seek. He does this on purpose. The, the betrayal was part of God's sovereign plan to usher Jesus to the cross. So we should be thankful for it in some sense. And he's simply being obedient to this aspect of God's plan. As we've seen the phrase pop up again and again in John, his time has now come. And then we see a second and obvious clue that Jesus is in control in verses 3 through 5. Notice again verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So so take a moment to envision this scene. John will later tell us it's a bone-chillingly cold night. It's an eerie evening. And Judas meets up with a cohort of Roman soldiers. So a cohort is 600 armed men carrying swords. And they team up with temple guards who have clubs. And so it's striking to me that Jews and Gentiles were for once united for a common cause. So they wanted to arrest Jesus away from the people so there would not be a riot. But they were prepared for the worst should should a riot occur. Well, then Judas leads them down. They wind down from the high walls of the holy city. And they cross over the brook of Kidron. And then they ascend the Mount of Olives. So if you're there in that garden, imagine what an ominous scene that must have been. The sight of a long line of men marching with flickering torches and lanterns coming your way. I don't know about you, but but my reaction would have been to have gotten the heck out of there. to, To run away as fast as I could to take advantage of the cloak of darkness. But, but notice Jesus doesn't flinch or flee. And instead of waiting to be found, he goes forward and faces the armed crowd. And then verses 4 and 5 say, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So notice that Jesus does not pretend to be somebody he's not. He doesn't say, wait a minute, you've got the wrong guy. I'm actually Brian Christ, the lesser-known brother of Jesus Christ. You know, he, he could have pretended to be the gardener, 
Remember that Mary Magdalene mistook him for after the resurrection. So Jesus apparently had a doppelganger running loose. There, there, I met another man this morning named Cameron, red hair, and he looks just like Brian Luttrell from Backstreet Boys. So uh, we've got him among us even this morning. But, but no, Jesus readily admits that he's the man that they're looking for. And from the other gospel accounts, we know that Judas betrayed him and identified him with a kiss to mark him. But understand that his admission here is more than just an establishment of identity. It was a declaration of his deity. Uh, Notice again verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And so Jesus says, I am he, or literally, I am. And so what he's doing here, he's using the same divine title that that God used when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And when Jesus says, I am, and declares his divinity, those hundreds of men are sent scrambling, armed, intimidating men fall back on their butts on the ground. And so what's happening here, Christ is establishing the pecking order. I don't know if you're a sports fan like I am, but my hero in the 90s, I'm a 90s kid, was Michael Jordan. And, And one of my favorite Uh, moments about Jordan's life is the story of him punching Steve Kerr right in the face. And so Steve Kerr joins the dominant 90s NBA teams, and at one point in practice, he doesn't want Jordan to show him up, so he has a contention with him. He gets in Jordan's face, and Jordan punches him right in the face, puts him on the ground. So apparently at times, you just got to punch a man in the mouth to show him who's boss. And that's what, don't try that when you get home, but this is what Jesus is doing here. He's making sure they knew that he ruled the roost. Yeah, Brittany, don't get ideas. Uh, Similarly, Jesus is making it clear that he's in control of the situation. So think about, just as a side note, how Judas must have been feeling in that moment as he's on his back. Do you think he regretted betraying Jesus as he had done? Do you think he thought that he was in a little bit of trouble? So then in verses 7 through 9, we get a final indicator, final clue that Christ is in control. Verse 7 says, So he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And I do have to imagine as they're on their backs or dusting themselves off that their tones probably changed a little bit at this point, probably more like Jesus of Nazareth. They're fearful of what just happened. But we learn here that they were not only trying to arrest Jesus, but his band of men as well. Because notice his reply in verse 8 and then 9. I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And so Jesus makes it clear that there are issues with him and not his men. So he looks after them. He protects them. And based on the soldier's previous few minutes, the only appropriate response is, yes, sir. And they let him go. Also, we need to acknowledge this is a tender scene because we witness the great shepherd selflessly caring for his sheep in the midst of his own unrest. He's not preoccupied with his circumstances. And so as is common in the book of John, we again see Scripture being fulfilled before our eyes here And as one commentator notes, the disciples' physical preservation symbolizes their future spiritual preservation. 
So the point is, is that Jesus would not lose a single one of them. And so, City Light, what's the big takeaway from verses 1 through 9? Well, I hope it's evident by this point. Jesus is in complete control. He is the sovereign God of the universe. Nothing happens on this planet without his divine direction or permission. And since he's in control of all things, logically then, it means he's also in control of our lives. Aren't you thankful that if you've trusted in him, that that Jesus is in control of your eternal destiny? He will see you through until you get to your heavenly home with with him. And just as he did not lose any of his disciples, he won't lose you as well. It also means that he's in control of every single detail of your life until you get there. Think about it. Jesus is sovereign over your job circumstances. He is sovereign over your marital status. He has control over your fertility. He's there looking over in the midst, concerned about your family drama. Though it might not seem like it at times, God's got you. And so it only makes sense then that we trust our lives to such a sovereign Lord. But yet, our propensity is to treat God the way I treat my airplane pilots. It makes sense to trust Him, but we don't. We don't want to give up control. Think about it. We have the opportunity to trust our lives and our circumstances to the sovereign controller of the universe. But yet, in our pride, we say, no thanks, I'm good. I can manage on my own. So this leads us to our second big observation in the passage. So number two, we have a control problem. I confess to you as one of your pastors, I have a control problem at many moments in my life. And notice again verses 11 through 10 through 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and he cut off his right ear. And that servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so let's do a quick survey to this point of all the different ways the characters in this narrative have tried to control Jesus. And so Judas is trying to control him to improve his life circumstances, trades loyalty for a few pieces of silver. The Jewish leaders, they're trying to control Jesus. They're jealous of his popularity. They fear that their power is in jeopardy. And then the Romans, they wanted to snuff out Jesus, a potential uprising. And then we come to old Peter. And I don't know about you, I'm so thankful for this man because he's just as dense as I am on many days. He is exhibit A that spiritual lessons are sometimes slow to sink in. Just think, Jesus had just demonstrated that he's in control. A whole cohort, they fall back on their keisters. And he calls the dogs off his men, freeing them. And then what does Peter do? Hold my beard, Jesus, I've got this. And he takes his sword and he tries to split Malchus's skull in half. I mean, in this moment, Peter thinks he's Tupac. It's just me against the world. I can take him. I'm man enough for this. So again, understand that Peter was not accurate enough with his little sword to slice a person's ear off. He was trying to crack that guy's head open. And I believe the sword hit the helmet, 
glanced off and lopped off his ear. And so Jesus has to rebuke him again, and he reminds him that, no, I'm in control, Peter, not you. Watch yourself. Jesus is willingly giving his life over for the sake of sinners like Peter. Now, I do believe Peter had a measure of love for the Lord. He had some type of affection. He acknowledged that he was the Christ. But, but Peter's still caught up in the dream of being a primary player in a militaristic kingdom of God. He just hasn't yet got it that the kingdom of God will be primarily spiritual for now until Christ comes back the second time. And that it will come about through the suffering of the Son of God. Now, as much as we laugh at Peter, let me just lay out before us that we act the same way all the time. As one pastor said it, we are just as guilty of the sin of the drawn sword. And we commit this sin anytime we attempt to exert control and, and micromanage all the circumstances we face in life as opposed to surrendering control to God. And so what areas of your life cause you to pull your sword out of the sheath again and again and again? What's your hang-up? You know, for some of you, it might be finances. You worry and fret about your job, and you're obsessed with bank statements and retirement funds and bottom lines. And if you're honest, there's constant arguing that takes place under your roof about spending and the notion of giving sacrificially to this church, it scares you because you just can't let go of your money. That's your security. And then maybe for others of you, it's your children. You know, maybe some of you, the best nickname I could give you is Blackhawk because you're a helicopter mom or a helicopter dad. And what I've discovered is it's especially sad when parents micromanage their kids to the degree that they snuff out God's good work in their life. They oppose the way he's commissioning them to go out on a mission. Uh, can I just say that this is one of the biggest frustrations I had as a youth pastor for seven years. Uh, moms and dads, they, they wanted me to disciple their kids. They wanted them to be in church. But when they begin to get a passion for the Great Commission and a gospel ambition to leave home, to plant a church in a major city or to go to another continent... They tended to clamp down on their kids. Let me say this in love this morning. I don't have kids, but I've been a kid, okay? So I've got some license here. God loves your, if that's how it works, God loves your kids more than you ever could. And you might have a good plan for your kids and your grandkids, but you need to keep those plans loose in your hands because God's plans always supersede our plans. Yes, he gave you your kids as a good gift. And you should love them and cherish them and care for them. But I say to you, you also must continually give them back to the Lord. Releasing your kids is the very best way you can bless them. So don't cripple them. Don't quench the Spirit's work in their life. The center of God's will is actually the safest place that they can be. Or maybe you're here this morning and your sword comes out regarding your singleness. And I do have some authority to speak into this because I just got married like a few months ago. I was a 34-year-old man before it finally happened. My mama was praising God for maybe grandbabies finally coming her way. But some of you have just hit 30, and like me, you're single. And now you're in a state of panic 
And so suddenly you find yourself on Christian Mingle and Craigslist and Angie's List. And I don't know what Angie's List is, but... And then eHarmony. And you've even been so bold as to join FarmersOnly.com. And by Ned, if you have to buy a John Deere tractor and get some boots, if that means getting a husband, you'll, you'll pay that price. And then anytime you enter a room, your, your eyes activate like heat-seeking missiles. And again, I'm, I've been there, done that. And you're scanning, determining, and so I don't know where my ring is, by the way, for uh, cute, cute, cute guys and gals trying to scope out to see uh, if they're married or not. Now listen, dating sites aren't necessarily bad. Can we have an honest moment of confession? I'm just curious. Who met their spouse on a dating site? Be bold on that. I see hands going up. Listen, it's not bad. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to um, cast your net out there, see if there's more fish in the sea. Now, I was always afraid I'd get a hold of a black widow and wouldn't make it out alive, but you can do that. It's a good thing to pursue potential partners. Uh, but here's where we get in trouble. Sometimes we get so desperate that we compromise our Christian values just to have a warm body next to us. And a lot of times we begin to justify unhealthy relationships because we lose our patience. And so listen, I know it's hard. Uh, the longing to be married is a real thing and waiting is painful. But please be comforted by the fact that God is well aware of your situation. He knows your heart's desire. I'm just going to ask you this morning, would you just trust him that there's a reason for the delay? Don't compromise. And so, so what is it for you? What area of your life do you need to relinquish control of? Uh, what do you need to turn over to the Lord this morning? Now, before we move on, we need to acknowledge that our control problem is not just theological. I mean, yes, we need a regular reminder of the understanding that Jesus is sovereign over all things. But because we have inherited the, the sin nature of our forefathers, our foreparents, Adam and Eve, the default position of our hearts is going to be to try to cling and grasp for control. So control is ultimately a heart issue. We can't help but do it. So think about it. A hunger for control... It's what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. They took the fruit and decided that it was better to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. They moved from a state of surrender to a state of sinful self-autonomy. That's a really bad place to be in. And they wanted freedom. And they thought if they could just get out from under God's commands that they would have freedom. But what awaited them on the other side was not freedom, but rather it was enslavement. And sadly, it was estrangement from God. And so, so how is it then that we can break this sick cycle of sin and control in our lives? Can control freaks like us find any freedom? Well, there's glorious news in this text. There is hope. And the hope is big observation number three. Jesus gave his life to liberate us. The good news of the gospel Jesus gave his life on a cross to liberate us. And notice again verses 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, 
for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so Jesus is arrested, and his trial begins. And so first he's led to Annas, who is like a high priest emeritus, not official in title, but he still had lots of control and authority. Then he's moved on to Caiaphas, the acting high priest. Then we're reminded in verse 14 that at some point Caiaphas made an unconscious prophecy. Didn't even understand what he was doing that, from his perspective, it's better for a controversial man or a figure to die to prevent political unrest. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus would go and to die, but he died to undo our spiritual unrest. His death wasn't political in nature, it was spiritual. And then I love what verse 11 said. We just read that a few moments ago. He would go on to drink the cup that we deserve to drink. In the Old Testament, the cup symbolized the suffering associated with bearing the wrath of God. And we deserve that cup because of our sins. But out of his great love for us and in obedience to his Father's plan, the sinless Savior took the punishment for sins on our behalf on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could avoid God's wrath forever. And I love the way that Christ says it in John 10, 17 through 18, another indicator that he's in control. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so Jesus willingly laid his life down. And by the power of God, he resurrected from the grave, and he did so so that we, control freaks, could be liberated from our sins, so that we can enjoy in the future with our Savior. And the way by which we receive the liberation, the renewed relationship with God, is by relinquishing control, by letting go and affixing our lives to Jesus, by stopping your striving and by trusting in Christ. And when you do that, it's a beautiful picture. He removes that cold and controlling heart of stone. And in its place, he inserts an obedient heart of flesh. Now, the sin nature still remains, and there's much work for the Spirit to do. But after we trust in him, the Spirit continually works in us to help us deepen our dependence on the Lord. And so in the garden, we see Jesus demonstrating that he never once lost control, did he? But then he gets to the cross... And to many eyes, that looked like sure defeat. But the empty cross proved that that was God's plan all along, his great redemptive plan, that Christ's suffering served a great purpose. So could it not be the case then that that the pain and, and suffering you're experiencing this morning, the moments in your life that you're wrestling with that you've chalked up to defeat, Could it not be that God would also use those very instances of pain and suffering to further his great redemptive purposes? And so what I'm trying to say is, is that though you can't see it, your suffering is never wasted. 
Though it might seem like things in your life are spiraling out of control, God is always in control. He's never absent. He's never far from you if you've trusted in him. Uh, Romans 8, 28 says it this way, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so could it be that those financial struggles you're experiencing, what if God has designed all of that just to teach you to trust in him? Maybe it's a gift from him, though you can't see it right now. And that relationship that broke your heart into a million pieces, what if God allowed that to dissolve to save you from more severe future heartache? I mean, I'm so thankful that he saved me from some train wrecks of relationships that I was involved in in the past. And it hurt at the time, but praise God for this beautiful woman sitting in front of me now. It was worth it. The wait was absolutely worth it. Trust God to write you a love story that's infinitely better than the one you can orchestrate in your own power. And parents, I want to say to you that if your kid turns out to be a missionary, there are far worse options on the table, let me tell you. Um, It was hard for my mom to release me to the Lord, to be a preacher, to move out of state, but it is a far better trajectory than some of the ones I was on back in high school. You understand the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, and he seeks young people to devour. I mean, he, the, the enemy is constantly vying for the affections of the next generation. So anytime our young people are, demonstrate gospel ambition and gospel affection, we should commend that and celebrate that and not snuff that out. Because the pain of losing a child to the foreign mission field that's a far better pain than losing them to the evil one. You know, if you think about it, what's underneath our desire for control is really a desire for a good life, a desire for peace, and we try to avoid pain at all costs. But the reality is we live in such a broken and fallen world that pain is going to be part of our existence. And there's so much sinful turmoil that is swirling around us that we will never obtain relational peace in our own power. So it's absolutely best for every single person in this room to surrender your lives to the only sovereign being in existence. Jesus is the only one who can make sense of your pain. And he's the only one that can, can, can sustain you in the midst of your suffering by giving you peace in the midst of your pain. You know, this side of eternity, we might never know all the reasons for why we suffer. But I can promise you, your suffering isn't wasted. Because we see exemplified in the life of Jesus that suffering serves somehow God's divine purposes. So so the sad news is we will all have to endure our fair share of Gethsemane-like experiences on this fallen earth. But the glorious promise of Scripture is that someday Jesus will come back for his kids. And he's going to take us to what the Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth. And it's so much better than the earth we're living in now. From that earth, every trace of sin will be eradicated. The Garden of Gethsemane will revert back to the Garden of Eden. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more separation, no more relational strife. So, so together with God and with one another, we'll enjoy sweet, holy fellowship 
as the ages roll on. So City Lot, I close with this. It is absolutely worth losing all control of our lives now to someday gain a life like that. Let's stand and pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is simple. Please, Spirit of God, work in us. For believers, Lord, continue your good sanctifying work in us. May the testimony of our lives be that we live open-handedly, that we continually surrender ourselves, our circumstances to you. And just help us to see this morning specific areas where we need to put the sword back in the sheath. And then, God, for unbelievers, people here that don't yet know you, God, just help them to see what a slippery, slippery slope they're on. And may they trust their lives to you. May, in this moment, your spirit help them to see that the beauty, the joy, the peace that's con- contained in the person of Christ. And we ask this in your name. Amen.